Chapter 12 The Sacrament of Communion The mystery of thy dispensation, O Christ our God, has accomplished and perfected, as far as it was in our power. For we have had the memorial of thy death. We have seen the type of thy resurrection. We have been filled with thine unending life. We have enjoyed thine inexhaustible food, which in the world to come be well pleased to vouchsafe to us all, through the grace of thine eternal Father, and thine holy and good and life-creating Spirit. Liturgy of St. Basil the Great 1. The liturgy underwent many changes over the centuries of its prolonged development, but no change was more profound and more significant than that registered in the last part of the Eucharistic ceremony, the order of partaking of the holy gifts of the body and blood of Christ. Inasmuch as this part truly concludes and fulfills the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, and thus the entire liturgy, we must dwell on it, or rather on the changes that distorted it in the beginning of this last chapter. From the very beginning, the Church perceived the partaking of all the faithful at the liturgy as the obvious goal of the Eucharist and as the realization of the words of the Savior, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, Luke 22.30. Therefore, the table was the form of the Eucharist and common partaking its fulfillment. All this is self-evident and requires no demonstration in the orthodox perspective. What does demand explanation is the fact of the gradual falling away over history of great numbers of members of the Church from this perception of the Eucharist, its reduction to an individualistic perception. The contemporary, faithful, churchly person sees no necessity of approaching communion at every liturgy. He has learned from the Catechism that, with a maternal voice, the Church commands us to confess before a spiritual father, and to partake of the body and blood of Christ, with most ardent reverence, four times a year, or once a month, but without fail once a year. One who desires to receive communion is obliged to go to the sacrament of confession. And finally, we need to emphasize if anyone among the laity wishes to partake, beyond the usual norm, then this desire, for want of and in the full absence of references to the assembly, to the ecclesial perception of the sacrament, is usually characterized as a quest for more frequent communion, and not as a church member's fulfillment of his Christian vocation, the fulfillment of his membership in the body of Christ. All of this became so firmly entrenched in church life that the Catechism contains special questions on how can those who only hear the divine liturgy but do not approach for Holy Communion participate in it? The answer is, they can and must take part through prayer, through faith, and through unceasing remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ, who precisely commanded us to do this in remembrance of Him. Let us note that Christ commanded us precisely to taste the gifts, take, eat, drink of it all of you. And let us also note that both these questions and answers concerning non-communicants relate in fact to the huge majority of the Church, and not to certain exceptional cases. Alas, in this doctrine, the exceptions are the communicants. What has happened? How was this metamorphosis in the perception, not only on the part of the people of the church, but also on the part of the episcopate, the clergy, and, finally, the theologians, of the very essence of the Eucharist, 
its reduction to one of the sacraments, one means of sanctification, accomplished? And why has it been maintained for centuries? Strange as it may seem, we find almost no attempt to answer these questions in our official academic theology. Meanwhile, as I noted above, we are dealing here not simply with the evolution of church discipline, a decline in piety, Western influences, etc., but with a spiritual turning point in the self-consciousness and self-perception of the church as a whole. We are dealing, in other words, with an ecclesiological crisis on which we shall focus our attention. 2. The most prevalent, customary explanation for the gradual disappearance of communion as participation in the fulfillment of the church consists of references to the unworthiness of the overwhelming majority of the laity to approach the cup frequently, and therefore their need, as it were, to bear supplementary requirements and guarantees. The laity live in the world, in continual contact with its impurity, untruth, sinfulness, lies, and thus they need special cleansing, special preparation, a special effort of repentance. I call this explanation pious, for in fact, in its best expressions and explanations it stems from a consciousness of sinfulness, from respect for the holy, from fear of one's own unworthiness. In one form or another, fear is inherent to all religions, in medieval Christianity, it permeated all of life. We have sinned, we have transgressed and done wrongfully before thee. Canon of St. Andrew of Crete, Ode 7, Hermos. Asceticism, often in its extreme form, constituted the moral idea of Christian society, and while not always observed, it proved to have an enormous influence. And the decline of the secular or white clergy, as witnessed, for example, in the canons of the Council in Trullo, 691, led to the leadership of church life passing over to monasticism. It is impossible for us to dwell here on the causes and forms of this many-sided process. What is important is that it gradually led to the clericalization of the church, to a great distancing of clergy and laity from each other. The whole atmosphere of the church changed, at the end of the fourth century, St. John Chrysostom wrote, But there are cases where the priest does not differ from those under him. For instance, when he must partake of the holy mysteries, we are all equally honored with them, not as in the Old Testament, when one food was for the priest and another for the people, and when it was not permitted to the people to partake of that which was for the priests. Now it is not so, for the same body and the same cup is offered to all and all of us equally embrace each other. But in the end, sacralization and clericalization triumphed. This is also seen in the development of the temple and its structure, which more and more emphasized the separation of the laity from the clergy. Again, Chrysostom wrote, When Christ came and suffered outside the city, he cleansed the entire earth. He made every place suitable for prayer. Would you want to know how the entire earth finally, was made a temple, and how every place became suitable for prayer. But the interpretation of both the temple and the liturgy in this key disappeared early enough from the church. Entry to the altar, approach to the sanctuary came to be forbidden to the laity, and their presence at the Eucharist became passive. It is accomplished on behalf of them, for them, 
but they do not take part in its accomplishment. If earlier the line separating the church from this world embraced the laity, it now excluded them. A perfect witness to this being their very definition as Marianne, or worldly ones, instead of the former Lekos, members of the people of God, God's own people. 1 Peter 2.9 3. In our day, preparation for communion, and this is clear in the light of what was said above about the perception of communion as a private, personal act, has likewise become a private preparation. Our prayer books contain prayers before communion, but, with the exception of two or three read before the communion itself, they are not a part of the actual text and rite of the liturgy. The prayer books also include prayers of thanksgiving after communion, also private and not included in the liturgy itself. This is understandable inasmuch as far from everyone present at the liturgy comes to the chalice and, consequently, for them, these prayers would be nominal. The composition, practice, and time of the reading of these prayers vary from book to book, as do their instructions on fasting. Taken by themselves, the majority of these prayers are beautiful, inspiring, and very beneficial. Hence, we are speaking not about them, but about their place in the liturgy, in the sacrament. The point is that nowhere in the liturgy, from the beginning of the anaphora, the liturgy of the faithful, to its very end, do we find a single reference to the roles of two categories of worshippers, the communicants of the holy mysteries and the non-communicants. On the contrary, even the most vaguely attentive reading of the pre-anaphora, anaphora, and post-anaphora prayers cannot but convince us that after the dismissal of the catechumens and, in the early church, the penitents, the doors being shut, we all celebrate the Eucharist, which is simultaneously the offering of the bloodless sacrifice and the preparation of the faithful for partaking of the holy body and blood of the Lord. Again, and oftentimes we fall down before thee, O God, who lovest mankind, that, looking down upon our petition, thou wouldst cleanse our souls and bodies from all defilement of flesh and spirit, and grant us to stand blameless and without condemnation before thy holy altar. Grant also to those who pray with us, O God, growth in life and faith and spiritual understanding. Grant them to worship thee blamelessly with fear and love, and to partake without condemnation of thy holy mysteries, and to be accounted worthy of thy heavenly kingdom. Second Prayer of the Faithful, Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Unto thee we commend our whole life and our hope, O Master who lovest mankind. We ask thee and pray thee and supplicate thee. Make us worthy to partake of the heavenly and awesome mysteries of this sacred and spiritual table with a pure conscience, for the remission of sins, for forgiveness of transgressions, for the communion of the Holy Spirit, for the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, for boldness towards thee, but not for judgment or condemnation. Prayer before our Father. Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. O Lord, our God, who hast created us and brought us into this life, who hast shown us the ways to salvation and bestowed on us the revelation of heavenly mysteries, Thou art the one who hast appointed to us to this service in the power of Thy Holy Spirit. Therefore, O Lord, enable us to be ministers of Thy New Testament and servants of Thy holy mysteries. Through the greatness of Thy mercy 
Accept us as we draw near to thy holy altar, so that we may be worthy to offer to thee this reasonable and bloodless sacrifice for our sins and for the errors of thy people, having received it upon thy holy, heavenly, and ideal altar as a sweet spiritual fragrance. Send down upon us in return the grace of thy Holy Spirit. Prayer of the Offering On the Placing of the Divine Gifts on the Holy Altar Liturgy of St. Basil the Great And finally, And unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Anaphora, Liturgy of St. Basil the Great It is hardly possible to reveal more clearly the organic link of the anaphora, the offering of the gifts, the bloodless sacrifice of praise, with preparation and communion. In the holy gifts we recognize the holy body and blood of Christ, the sacrifice offered by Christ on behalf of all and for all. In communion we receive it with faith, hope, and love in unity with Christ, with his life, with his kingdom. And however frightening this is to say, in their separation the genuine meaning of the Eucharistic sacrament is damaged. It begins to be perceived no longer as the fulfillment of the church, the manifestation of the kingdom of God and the new life, but as the tasting of sacred matter, which converts the sacrament, in the words of Komoikiav, into a certain anatomical miracle. It is precisely here that all the dead ends of the explanation of the Eucharist come to light. What both sides, in other words, Protestant and Catholic, only do, Komoikiev continues, is either deny or affirm the miraculous change of known earthly elements without understanding at all that the essential element of each sacrament is the Church, and that properly it is for her alone that the sacraments are accomplished, without any relation to the laws of earthly nature. He who has disdained the duty of love also loses the memory of its power, loses together with it the memory of what reality is in the world of faith. 4. Let us recall, above all, the order or sequence of the preparation as it has come down to us in the Byzantine liturgical tradition. I do not mean the proscimity of which we already spoke. We shall restrict ourselves to the liturgy of the faithful. Immediately after the Epiclesis, the celebrant begins the reading of the prayer of intercession. It would be more precise to define this prayer as the prayer of the gathering of the church, the body of Christ her manifestation in all fullness. And unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Grant that none of us may partake of the holy body and blood of thy Christ for judgment or condemnation. Instead, we may find mercy and grace with all the saints who through the ages have been well-pleasing to thee. Ancestors, fathers, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, preachers, evangelists, martyrs, confessors, teachers, and every righteous spirit made perfect in faith. Especially with our most holy, most pure, most blessed and glorious Lady Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary, with the holy prophet, forerunner, and Baptist John, the holy, glorious, and all-laudable apostles, and with all thy saints, by their prayers visit us, O God, Remember all those who have fallen asleep before us in hope of resurrection to eternal life. Grant them rest in forgiveness of soul, O our God, where the light of thy countenance shines on them. Again, we entreat thee, remember, O Lord, thy holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is from end to end of the universe, 
Give peace to her whom thou hast obtained with the precious blood of thy Christ. Also preserve this holy house until the end of the world. Remember, O Lord, those who offered thee these gifts, and those for whom and through whom they offered them. Remember, O Lord, those who bring offerings and do good in thy holy churches, and those who remember the poor. Reward them with thy rich and heavenly gifts, for their earthly, temporal, and corruptible gifts. Do thou grant them thy heavenly ones, eternal and incorruptible. Remember, O Lord, those who are in the deserts, mountains, caverns, and pits of the earth. Remember, O Lord, those who live in chastity and godliness, in austerity and holiness of life. And then a prayer for the civil authorities. Remember, O Lord, the people here present, and also those who are absent for honorable reasons. Have mercy on them, and on us according to the multitude of thy mercies. Fill their treasuries with every good thing. Preserve their marriages in peace and harmony. Raise the infants, guide the young, support the aged, encourage the faint-hearted, lead back those who are in error, and join them to thy holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Free those who are held captive by unclean spirits. Sail with those who sail. Travel with those who travel. Defend the widows. Protect the orphans. Free the captives. Heal the sick. Remember, O Lord, those who are in courts, in mines, in exile, in harsh labor, and those in any kind of affliction, necessity, or distress. Remember, O Lord, our God, all those who entreat thy great loving kindness those who love us and those who hate us, those who have asked us to pray for them, unworthy though we be, and remember all thy people, O Lord, our God. Pour out thy rich mercy upon all of them, granting them all the petitions which are for their salvation. And remember thyself, O God, all those whom we have not remembered, through ignorance, forgetfulness, or the multitude of names, since thou knowest the name and age of each, even from his mother's womb. For thou, O Lord, art the helper of the helpless, the hope of the hopeless, the savior of the bestormed, the haven of the voyager, the physician of the sick. Be all things to all men, O thou who knowest each man and his request, his home and his need. Deliver this city, O Lord, and every city and country from famine, plague, earthquake, flood, fire, sword, invasion by enemies, and civil war and then for the Episcopate. Among the first, remember, O Lord, and there's names here, grant them for thy holy churches in peace, safety, honor, health, and length of days to rightly define the word of thy truth. Remember, O Lord, my unworthiness also, by thy multitude of thy compassions. Forgive my every transgression, both voluntary and involuntary. Because of my sins, do not withhold the grace of thy Holy Spirit from these gifts here set forth. Remember, O Lord, the priesthood, the diaconate in Christ, and every order of the clergy. Let none of us who stand about thy holy altar be put to confusion. Visit us with thy loving kindness, O Lord. Manifest thyself to us through thy rich compassions. Grant us seasonable and healthful weather. Send gentle showers upon the earth so that it may bear fruit. Bless the crown of the year with thy goodness. Prevent schisms among the churches, pacify the ragings of the pagans, quickly destroy the uprisings of heresies by the power of thy Holy Spirit. Receive us all into thy kingdom, showing us to be sons of the light and sons of the day. Grant us thy peace and thy love, O Lord our God, for thou hast given all things to us.
and grant that with one mouth and one heart we may praise thine all-honorable and majestic name, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. And the mercies of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ shall be with you all, and with your spirit. The Liturgy of St. Basil the Great. 5. I have quoted the text of this prayer in full, because it most clearly and best of all reveals the meaning of the preparation for communion, with which it begins in the structure of the Eucharistic rite. As I have already said above, this prayer gathers and unites the entire cosmic, ecclesiological, and eschatological content of the Eucharist, and thus also manifests and grants to us the very essence of communion, the essence of the body of Christ and the new life in Christ. Yet it is not accidental, not from a love of repetition, that we are not immediately summoned to approach the chalice, that we delay it by this wonderful prayer, which seemingly slows down the rhythm of the Eucharist. The reason for this delay is not that we once again confess our sins and prepare ourselves for receiving the holy things, but rather that the church may fulfill herself in all fullness as the sacrament of the kingdom, as the reality of the new time and the new life. I have called the prayer of intercession cosmic. Visit us with thy loving kindness, O Lord. Manifest thyself to us through thy rich compassions. Grant us seasonable and healthful weather. Send gentle showers upon the earth so that it may bear fruit. Bless the crown of the year with thy goodness. I have called it ecclesiological. Prevent schisms among the churches, pacify the ragings of the pagans, quickly destroy the uprisings of heresies by the power of thy Holy Spirit. And finally, I have called it eschatological. Receive us all into thy kingdom, showing us to be sons of the light and the sons of the day. Grant us thy peace and thy love, O Lord our God, for thou hast given all things to us. And thus, the world, the church, the kingdom, all of God's creation, all salvation, all fulfillment, heaven on earth, one voice and one heart, one glorification and singing of the all-honorable name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Here is the essence of this great crowning prayer. Here is the ultimate supplication of the Eucharist, united around the Lamb of God in Christ the entire spiritual world, beginning with the Theotokos and the saints and ending with all, be all things to all men. This is what we are summoned to behold, to recognize, to perceive each time the Eucharist is celebrated. In this we must immerse our whole consciousness, all our love, all our desire, before approaching our immortal King and God. 6. It is indeed only after concluding the prayer of intercession that we enter into what we earlier termed the private preparation for communion. In other words, preparation not by the whole gathering, not by the whole church, but our individual prayer for personal cleansing. So that receiving a portion of thy holy things with a pure conscience, we may be united with the holy body and blood of thy Christ. Having received them worthily, may we have Christ dwelling in our hearts, and may we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, O our God, let none of us be guilty of these, thy awesome and heavenly mysteries, nor be infirm in soul and body by partaking of them unworthily. But enable us, even to our last breath, 
to receive a portion of thy holy things worthily as a support on the road to eternal life and an acceptable defense at the dread judgment seat of thy Christ, that we also, together with all the saints who through the ages have been well-pleasing to thee, may become partakers of the eternal good things which thou hast prepared for those who love thee, O Lord. As we see, the emphasis here shifts from the general and, as it were, exultant self-preparation of the entire church to the personal preparation of each member of the church. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 1 Corinthians 11.26-32 There can be no doubt that in the spirituality of early Christianity, the communal reinforced the personal, and the personal was impossible without the communal. There is, however, a big difference between that perception of both personal and communal and our own. The Apostle Paul convicted the believers who partook unworthily, and he threatened them with condemnation by it. He summoned them to examine themselves. But never at any time did he present them with a choice. You, the worthy, partake, and you, the unworthy, abstain. It is this choice that, little by little, led to the abstention of roughly the majority of the members of the church, and to the loss of the feeling and perception of the Eucharist as a common task, as a liturgy. And this very feeling of abstention, as it were, lost its power, expired, and turned into a form of disciplinary prescription, four times a year, with confession obligatory as almost a ticket to communion. The early church knew that, in all creation, there is no one who is worthy, through his own spiritual effort, through his own worthiness, to partake of the body and blood of Christ, and that therefore preparation consists not in a calculation and analysis of one's preparedness or unpreparedness, but in the answer of love to love, that we also, together with all the saints who through the ages have been well-pleasing to thee, may become partakers of thy eternal good things, which thou hast prepared for those who love thee, O Lord. When the celebrant proclaims the words, Holy things are for the holy, the church responds, One is holy, one is the Lord Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father, Amen. But in affirming and declaring this confession, she knows that the doors to the homeland of the heart's desire are open to all, and that there will be no separation from each other, O friends. Thus, this preparation is concluded in the unity of the common and the private, the Lord's Prayer, which was given to us by Christ himself. For in the last analysis, everything depends on one thing. Can we, do we, earnestly desire, with our whole being and in spite of all our insufficiency, fallenness, betrayal, and laziness, to receive the words of this prayer as our own, desire them as our own? Hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 7. 
In recent times, the Orthodox Church has witnessed a Eucharistic revival of sorts, which has been expressed, first of all, in a desire on the part of a great number of the laity for more frequent communion. This revival occurs differently in different places and cultures. But however joyful this revival is, I believe that a great number of dangers threaten it, chief of which consists in the deeper sacralization of the Church. Over the centuries of her coexistence with the government and the empire, the Church became transformed into an organization, into an institution for attending to the spiritual needs of the faithful, into an organization, on the one hand, subordinated to these needs, and on the other, defining them and governing them. The boundary separating the world from the Church, but also joining the world to the Church, which was so obvious for the early Church, became simply a boundary separating the world from the Church. I am convinced that the genuine revival of the Church begins with Eucharistic revival, but in the fullness of this word. The tragic flaw in the history of orthodoxy has proved to be not only the incompleteness, but, I dare say, the absence of a theology of the sacraments, its reduction into Western schemes and categories of thought. The Church is not an organization, but the new people of God. The Church is not a religious cult, but a liturgy, embracing the entire creation of God. The Church is not a doctrine about the world to come, but the joyous encounter of the kingdom of God. It is the sacrament of peace, the sacrament of salvation, and the sacrament of the reign of Christ. It remains for us to conclude these far-from-complete thoughts with a few brief remarks about the order of receiving communion itself. These remarks are of a primarily technical order, cultic in the most obvious sense of the word. Their content has been sufficiently expounded by Archimandrite Cyprian Kern, inasmuch as they reflect the defects that we were compelled to speak of above, I would like to summarize their main points. The first defect, in my opinion, is the profusion of symbolism, not the symbolism that we spoke of above as the sacramentality of all God's creation, but that allegorical symbolism that confers on each part of the sacred rite a special meaning, making it a representation of something that is not. For example, regarding the prayer at the fractioning of the Lamb, Father Cyprian concludes, while the choir sings Amen, and they have to sing it slowly, why? The priest reads the sacred prayer before the fractioning of the Lamb. While this prayer is read, the deacon, standing before the royal doors, binds the orarion about himself crosswise. Usually he does this during the singing of Our Father, who does what and when? But it turns out that, according to Simeon, the new theologian, the deacon is adorned with the orarion as if it were a certain set of wings, and he covers himself with reverence and humility when he partakes of communion, thus imitating the seraphim, who, as it is said, have six wings, two of which cover the feet, two the face, and two flutter with the singing of holy, holy, holy. The second defect consists of the secret prayers, as a result of which the overwhelming majority of the laity do not know and never even hear the text of the Eucharist itself, and are thus deprived of this priceless treasure. No one has ever explained why the chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own people, that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called them out of darkness, cannot listen to the prayers that they offer to God. The third defect is the distinction between the clergy and the laity during communion, 
a distinction with tragic consequences for church consciousness, but of which we have already spoken repeatedly. Defects of this sort can add up to a great multitude, but this subject remains a kind of incomprehensible taboo, and neither the hierarchy nor the theologians seem to take notice of it. This needs to be done, but no one is permitted to discuss the matter. Yet I repeat what I have repeated many times already in this book. What concerns the Eucharist concerns the Church, and what concerns the Church concerns the Eucharist, so that any ailment in the liturgy reflects on our faith and on the whole life of the Church. Ibi Ecclesia ubi Spiritus Sanctus et Omnis Gratia. And we, who stand about thy holy altar, Liturgy of St. Basil the Great, need to pray zealously to God that he will enlighten our inner vision with the illuminating simplicity of the most holy of the holy sacraments. 8. The divine liturgy is completed. Blessing the altar with the chalice, the priest exclaims, O God, save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Then he senses the holy altar three times, saying, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory over all the earth. Then the people answer, We have seen the true light. We have received the heavenly spirit. We have found the true faith, worshiping the undivided trinity who has saved us. And he takes the chalice away from the altar. Then comes the little litany, the short thanksgiving that, Thou hast made us worthy this day of thy heavenly mysteries. Make straight our path. Strengthen us all in thy fear. Guard our life. Make firm our steps. And after that, let us depart in peace. All is clear. All is simple and bright. Such fullness fills everything. Such joy permeates everything. Such love radiates through everything. We are again in the beginning, where our ascent to the table of Christ in his kingdom began. We depart into life in order to witness and to fulfill our calling. Each has his own, but it is also our common ministry, common liturgy, in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Lord, it is good that we are here.